In this episode I'm going to talk about the current NICE guidelines for the diagnosis and management of chronic heart failure. These guidelines were produced in 2010 and set the level of standard by which heart failure should be managed. I'm going to whiz through um, the quick reference guide um, that NICE use for this. Um, it's for anyone that wants to look on the NICE website, it's clinical guideline number 108 and it's under chronic heart failure. Um, if you want to see the actual flow charts that NICE use. So the first step um, that they um, talk about is diagnosing heart failure and um, specifically for GPs this is obviously a very important step because the chances are is that as a GP you will be the first point of contact uh, and often the first person to um, assess somebody who presents with features of heart failure. So the first bit of guidance that NICE give which seems fairly obvious is that um, a detailed history and clinical examination should be performed. Obviously in that uh, history and examination you should be thinking about the features suggestors of, of heart failure such as shortness of breath, orthopnea, um, palpitations, weakness, these sorts of things as well as uh, the signs that you might expect on clinical examination. Um, so once you've taken a history and examined the patient um, there are two pathways that can be taken first pathway is for those patients who have had a previous myocardial infarction um, and that is that if there are um, features suggestive of heart failure they should within two weeks have a specialist assessment i.e. in a cardiology clinic with a Doppler echocardiogram so essentially they need an urgent referral if they um, have any features of heart disease to a cardiology clinic with an echocardiogram and that's for a group of people who have had a previous myocardial infarction. In those with no previous myocardial infarction, there's a test that can be taken, which is um, the serum natriuretic peptides. Um, these are chemicals that are released by the ventricles, the left ventricle, uh, in response to strain and can be a good measure of ventricular strain and therefore can correspond with heart failure itself. So the suggestion um, is that if a person has symptoms of heart failure but has no previous myocardial infarction you take and measure the in a blood test the serum natriuretic peptides. If they have a high level um, and this is um, looking at uh, beta natriuretic peptide, although there are different tests that can be carried out, but specifically here I'll talk about the beta natriuretic, sorry, B-type natriuretic peptide, BNP. So a high level is um, more than 116 picomoles per litre. So this is a high level of BNP, and like with the previous group of people who have had a myocardial infarction in the past, those with a high level of BNP require within two weeks specialist referral to a cardiology clinic 
with an echocardiography. Those with the raised levels, which is um, a level of 29 to 116 picomoles per litre in PMP, these people require assessment with a Doppler within six weeks. So there's a little bit more time here um, in terms of when they need to get seen, which I guess makes sense because there is a correlation between the level of the natriuretic peptides and the severity of the heart failure. Just for reference, a normal level of BNP is less than 29 picomoles per litre. And for these patients with normal levels of BNP, um, heart failure is actually an unlikely diagnosis. So if you suspect someone of having heart failure but they have a normal level of BNP, you need to have a think again about a differential diagnosis because the likelihood of heart failure is reduced. So, thinking about the assessment um, with an echocardiogram now, whether or not it's within two weeks or six weeks, the actual assessment process is the same. Um, those who have a normal echocardiogram, so one where the ejection fraction appears to be preserved and there don't appear to be any clear abnormalities, you need to consider taking um, a measurement of the serum natriuretic peptides if the levels aren't already known. So essentially those people who have had a previous myocardial infarction who were referred straight to the clinic may not have had the serum natriuretic peptides measured already. Again, as I previously mentioned, if those levels are normal, you need to think about another diagnosis because heart failure is unlikely. In those who have a normal echocardiogram but raised levels of natriuretic peptide, you need to think about investigating for other diagnoses, but there is the possibility that these people have heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. So the, there is biochemical evidence of heart failure, but at present their heart um, is functioning normally within the normal limits shown on an echocardiogram. Okay, and now we come to the group who have suspected heart failure and have an abnormality on the echocardiogram that's consistent with heart failure. Here, obviously, you need to think then about the severity, the etiology, precipitating factors, the type of cardiac dysfunction, and any correctable causes. So essentially, you need to, you've come up with the diagnosis of heart failure now, and you need to think about all of the potential causative factors and correction of those. Um, but this brings us on to the management of heart failure itself. So specifically, we're talking about this group of people now who have either had a previous MI or no previous MI, but have features of heart failure with raised natriuretic peptides and an abnormal echo. So essentially, they have all of the features that are consistent with heart failure. So, 
how do we manage these people? Well, NICE have come up with reasonably straightforward guidance on managing these people, especially for general practitioners. And the main guidance is for managing those who have heart failure due to left ventricular dysfunction. Currently, NICE advocate the use of both an ACE inhibitor and beta blockers as first-line treatment for those with uh, left ventricular dysfunction and both of these are licensed for use in this situation. In terms of initiating these medicines, um, when you are initiating the ACE inhibitor the idea is to optimise the dose by starting low and titrating the dose upwards every two to three weeks for instance until symptoms are controlled. You need to remember with ACE inhibitors that prior to initiating them the renal function should be checked and after every increase in dose again should be checked to make sure there is no deterioration in the renal function so you should be checking urea, creatinine, electrolytes and an EGFR as well. For those patients who aren't tolerant of ACE inhibitors, you can consider an angiotensin receptor blocker instead as a switch for the ACE inhibitor. Beta blockers, um, when initiating these, which you would give first line in combination with the ACE inhibitor, um, you need to think about who um, beta blockers may be contraindicated in. However, some of those patients that you would think about contraindications to, NICE suggests that um, beta blockers should are licensed for and should be trialled uh, in older adults as well as patients with peripheral vascular disease, erectile dysfunction, diabetes, um, interstitial pulmonary disease and um, COPD where there's no reversibility. So. There's quite a wide range of patients who a uh, beta blocker might be suitable for if they're tolerant of them. And like with the ACE inhibitor, the idea is to um, start low and go slow. So um, start a small dose of beta blocker initially, assess the patient's heart rate, their blood pressure and their clinical status um, after each dose increase. Um, and Based upon that, you can think about increasing the dose if their symptoms of heart failure haven't been improved. So, you start a patient on an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker. You titrate up the doses until you are giving the maximum doses allowed to try and optimise their symptoms. If they are still um, symptomatic and not making big improvements, with these treatments, then you need to think about referring the patient to um, a cardiology clinic for further specialist assessment. NICE recommends that um, if a patient's intolerant um, of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, then you should consider giving hydralazine in combination with nitrite as a replacement treatment to an ACE inhibitor. But again, this should be happening 
really after a patient's been seen um, by a specialist who may initiate these. Um, so, like I said, you've tried to optimise treatment, but a patient's still symptomatic and they go get referred to a specialist. Um, at this point, um, the NICE guidelines suggest that second-line treatment should be considered, which may be one of three different things. It, you may consider an aldosterone agonist, antagonist, sorry. So, for instance, um, spironolactone, which uh, may be helpful, especially in those patients who have severe or moderate heart failure as well as those who have had a myocardial infarction in the previous month. Or you may consider um, an angiotensin receptor blocker on top of those patients who already have treatment with an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker. Um, you may consider adding that. Or finally, you might consider hydralazine in combination with a nitrite, so a bit like in those patients who are intolerant of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, this is a, an option, a combination that can be given as a second line treatment with ACE inhibitor and beta blocker already initiated. And this can be suitable in those patients who are of African or Caribbean origin, um, and again with a moderate or severe heart failure. Like I said, there should be specialist involvement in this point and uh, in making a decision as to which of these medicines would be best. Um, just a little bit more on this, if despite second line treatment the patient isn't um, improving or they're having persistent symptoms, you might consider um, what's called cardiac resynchronization therapy. So um, this is effectively pacing and um, again specialist input is going to be required at this point but you may consider the patient having a pacemaker. Um, and also at this point digoxin may um, be a alternative to those patients who don't have cardiac resynchronization therapy. Just a note on digoxin, um, it's not actually been proven to reduce mortality in patients with heart failure, but it can improve symptoms um, because it has, it has inotropic properties, so it can um, improve the cardiac output. Um, it's especially indicated in those patients who might have coexistent atrial fibrillation, obviously because uh, it can um, improve the atrial fibrillation as well as the heart failure. Um, so these are the main um, treatment guidelines. Um, like I said, as GPs, there's a reasonable limitation to what you can actually do before secondary care or specialist input is required um, but certainly it's important to know that both um, ACE inhibitor and beta blocker should be given as a first-line treatment at the same time. Just a few extra notes really that I wanted to talk about um, on a couple of things. Um, firstly, um, those patients who have a diagnosis of heart failure, diuretics um, 
we've talked about spironolactone, which is a licensed second line treatment, but um, diuretics on the whole actually aren't otherwise involved in the management of chronic heart failure. However, those patients who have features of fluid overload, you might consider giving loop diuretics to, for instance, to improve those symptoms. Um, all patients should be offered an annual influenza vaccine. This is a high-risk group of patients, so they should be um, given it. And also they should be given a, a one-off um, pneumococcal vaccine as well. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, natriuretic peptides again. Um, I know we've talked about measuring them and um, using them in the diagnosis of heart failure. Uh, like I said, um, the, the B-type, the B-natriuretic peptide, um, is a hormone that's produced mainly by the left ventricle in response to strain. And we mentioned that heart failure is the most obvious cause of the raised level of BNP. Um, but any cause of left ventricular dysfunction can actually lead to a raised BNP. So myocardial ischemia or any kind of valvular disease can cause raised levels. Um, also, patients with chronic kidney disease may show um, increased levels because it is excreted um, by the kidneys. Things to think about which can reduce BNP levels um, include treatment with ACE inhibitors, um, angiotensin II um, receptor blockers and diuretics. These can all cause reduced levels. The actual effect of the BNP, the reason it's produced is that it's a, it's a response of the body to um, the strain that's been put on the left ventricle and it has a vasodilatory effect, it has a diuretic effect and an atriuretic effect and it also can cause suppression of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So the idea is that it's the body trying to uh, sort things out itself um, to reduce the amount of strain on the left ventricle. Um, at the moment, um, we don't specifically use BNP for prognosis. However, there is some initial evidence that shows that patients with a high um, BNP, um, high level of BNP, carry a very poor prognosis. So um, this may well be used in the future specifically for um, giving a prognosis. So I hope you that's been a useful session. Um, it's a little bit complicated and quite tricky, but once you've got your head around the initial diagnosis and assessment, the management side of things is actually reasonably straightforward.